cover of Caged Elephant. Well, welcome everyone to the Tori Says Show. I'm your host, Tori. And today is November 22nd, 2022. Tomorrow I will not be having a show as um, I have been uh, a little bit under the weather physically. I guess also, you know, um, I'm uh, busy in prayer and <laughs> doing other things. So tomorrow I will not be having a show or on Thanksgiving Day. I will try to um, prep my $1.69 a pound turkey and um, try to do that in between sniffles and coughs. I, I am not feeling the holidays. How about you? It seems that the holidays are no longer holiday-ish. It's usually a time um, right about now that all of us are excited. Uh, I have to put up a tree. I don't know how I'm going to do that tomorrow. Um, we'll see. We shall see. And I hope most of you are getting together with family. I know that... Um, We'll all be watching uh, the new director's cut of Enjoy the Show on Thanksgiving and um, enjoying some turkey, which I hope I cook well. <laughs> uh, because, you know, I, you know, when you cook, you put your heart and soul into it. And um, if you're in a crappy mood, uh, your food's going to taste crappy. 
Uh, and I'm hoping that I have the same spirits. I was actually in a very um, bad physical state on Sunday, but all my kids, you know, my son-in-law and my daughters, we, we were all together in my tiny apartment. Um, and I cooked for them and it actually tasted really good because it reflected just how happy I was that I um, was surrounded by love, which, you know, many of us struggle in accepting it. You know, I, I had a very real conversation with um, someone that has been in my life for more than three decades. And I was like, you know, I still can't get over the fact that I was purchased a car. It's one of the most humbling moments to not have self-love or respect, I guess, because of your actions or what you've done, right? To be able to accept kindness is a lot more difficult than being kind. Now, today we're going to have some difficult conversations, which I hope uh, will allow you to ponder over this time for those of you that may not be working or will be spending hours prepping for Thanksgiving. I want to remind all of you that Satan, Lucifer, Baal, whatever you want to call him, evil, evil, wicked people, they never rest. But I want to assure you that they will not come to you with teeth glaring. They will not show you fangs. They will not show you devastation, ill intent, harm, wicked things. They will show you everything you want to see. He is called the great deceiver for a reason. Can you not see that we live in his times? Every war is based on deception. And deception is the era that we are in. Even though you have been provided information, and this is also the age of information, ignorance is simply a choice. Pacification is easily achieved when there are small wins to encourage you and pacify you. As an example, Jeffrey Epstein, he was arrested. He apparently committed suicide along with his French counterpart, right? Jean-Luc. But the person that actually created Epstein, the person that facilitated his financial necessities, the person that was paying for his homes, his jets, his expenditures, his chefs, and all the things that assisted him in executing the tasks that he were given by his 
earthly master. Well, that earthly master got a sweet deal from the Department of Justice. And he sits pretty in Ohio, funding the very people that govern you. There is no rest for the wicked because there are always people right there that can speak partial tongues so well that they can even deceive the deceiver. It's quite fascinating that we do not see the deception, that we are trading one cage for another simply because the other cage probably has bars that are invisible or maybe it's adorned with patriotic slogans. It's a shame. Maybe it's painted in compassion or a false remorse or seeking truth. And that is not its goal. Many will arise and aid to the confusion. They will express this confusion as a question. Because sometimes posing a question isn't necessarily validating the notions that are being purported, but is enough to plant a seed into your mind to question things. And this is the whole point of confusion and distortion. I, as you know, absolutely love Russell Brand. You know, like for me, I'm just saying as a woman, he's super hot. Yeah, I know. He's not that pretty. People say, I think he is. And I think his internal struggle to maintain his loyalty to one God while through his questions and perversions accepts another without admitting it. See, sometimes the weapons that are used at war boomerang and change you like Shale LaBeouf. You know, he went out to produce a movie about Jesus Christ and, and monks and his soul has been redeemed. Huh. Interesting. Well, many are like, oh my gosh, he was like this. And it's like, you should rejoice on the fact that he has been redeemed. But speaking of Russell Brand, who I simply adore, I see this episode of him putting questions out is bifurcated. One, it indicates his internal struggle to ascertain and create hard lines to discern what's fact, fiction, and deception, but at the same time executing um, the tasks of uh, parcel speak to sow the seeds of confusion. And so if it's bifurcated, is this good? Well, like art, visual art, video, sound, and music is in the eyes and ears of the beholder. So if you choose to see him as a conduit of sowing seeds of doubt to perpetuate this era of deception and confusion, 
well, then that is what you will see. But if you see it as a man who has laid down his foundation to the king of deception, struggling with his own fog of war, well, then that's what you will say too. So I think it's important that I share this um, episode that he put out, which I, I simply uh, adore. I think it is uh, very interesting to see this internal struggle of discussion. And he speaks of people that all of you either like, dislike, or are on the fence about. Yay, Tate, President Trump, and Jordan Peterson. It's fascinating. Let's go. The, the four horsemen of the, of the apocalypse. Twit, can you do a pun on that? That's pretty good. The Twitter apocalypse. I don't know, apocalypse twit. They're back on, aren't they? Tate and Kanye and all of that. And what does it mean now? What is morality anymore? Who gets sanctioned? Who imposes sanctions? Former guest on the show, and I, and I would say friend of the show, because I, I, I'm certainly a friend of me personally, Jordan Peterson. Uh, he's back on Twitter. He's, he's baiting them by using the famous shining image of Jack Nicholson there. Effective, isn't it? Yeah, because of like the whites of the eyes and the teeth. That's menace. And mm. also that he's glancing to the side. That's a lot of whites. That's a lot of whites. Do you think he does his own tweets, Jordan? Yeah, yeah. I do. JP does his own tweets. No question. No mm. question. And what's the first tweet back from, say, uh, Andrew Tate? Oh, I mean, very. Uh, we've not had Andrew Tate on, have we? Like, A lot of people say misogynist, sexist. Some people say just the sexier JP. He says, mastery is a funny thing. It's almost as if on a long enough time scale, losing simply isn't an option. Such is the way of Wu Dan. Now, I will say I don't know what Wu Dan is. So that's probably something that he talks about on his in his content, I suppose, right. is it? It's not just misspelled Wuhan. Is it Wuhan? Such is the way of Wuhan. <laughs> right. You're fine in the lab. Stay away from the wet market. <laughs> that lab, it, they clean, literally clinical conditions. Very safe in there. You don't need to worry. But that wet market, <laughs> but like, careful, you'll do a pandemic. Yay came back with a much more I sort of direct I reckon Yay does his own tweets because his first tweet back testing testing seeing if my Twitter is unblocked <laughs> I like that because that is is that meta or is that just, just how he did that yeah because look Yay is a great case study for the nature of genius because he's a great creator and he's brilliant and there's been so many times when he's sailed close to the winds you can see that there's been times where they've gone we don't like Kanye shut him down shut him down but then of course he uh, you know he's recently I think they've stepped it up a little bit there's been cancellation of his deals and all stuff okay? mm. and that was you know and kicked it took off a while though didn't it they had to grind him took their time mm, not sure <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where. can so, make quite a lot from oh, him oh is it just they've got to do those calculations like Rogan like you know they wanted to cancel Rogan during all that Covid stuff but someone's doing the maths over at Spotify <laughs> oh guys, it's the Taylor Swift album a day we can't cancel him <laughs> shit shit so Twitter have allowed back those four particular people but like who like, and I suppose there's a lot of outrage. Again, you can sort of, isn't it now? Are we at a time where your opinion is determined by a set of, uh, of pre-agreed alliances and principles, is it? Like, if you're a centre-left liberal person and it's like, no, it's outrageous, they should be banned. That's why it's interesting to watch Chappelle on SNL because he's like Jellignite and he's sort of like saying, like, you know, you like introducing the subject of Kanye or Trump, but then being sort of genuinely surprising on those subjects, sort of inviting you to challenge your own principles. 
prejudices and your preconditions for laughing. You can hear that kind of nervousness. And of course, what's said about Twitter is, well, look, if we are banning Trump and Jordan Peterson and Andrew Tate and Kanye, if you have to be sort of like, I'm down for free speech, mm. or you have to say, right, what, well, what are the conditions? Is it inciting violence? Mm. In which case you have to agree that Trump was integrally involved in what some call the insurrection and other call protests of January the 6th. To say that Tate is a misogynist, I guess you have to agree with certain aspects of that. And then sort of Kanye, I guess it's the anti-Semitism. And with JP, it was the stuff about Elliot Page, who when we had our conversation, I challenged him on that basis, not from a free speech angle, Angle, but just from a simple compassion one and you can go and check that when you've checked this and let me know in the chat in the comments what you think about free speech in general free speech surely means the freedom of speech for people that you disagree with to express their opinions freely here are some other people gareth will you read this to us this is about other this is people about fifa that, actually well uh, why haven't we got it's something about story. other people that are banned from twitter well the sheiks and shakes and, and people that were like our oh, good old 2010 style terrorists the comment has been made and it has been made a lot by say right wing commentators around the time when Trump was being banned of you know leaders of repressive regimes who weren't necessarily banned that you had uh, I don't know Iranian leaders or other examples Venezuelan leaders who were committing atrocities in their own countries and yet they were still allowed on Twitter and I suppose the comment was what what's the rule then where where's the cut off point what is the rule because if the rule is ban dictators then you've got to ban all dictators if it's advocates of violence then you have to ban all advocates of violence it has to be uniform otherwise people will identify other patterns and say oh it's because of your personal political preferences i guess also you know we we had alan mcleod on talking about um how the infiltration of groups like the cia into twitter uh, and when you look at, I mean, th- then it's like, do you how how far down do you go? Do you look at the CIA and say, well, what have the CIA been guilty of? What kind of things in relation to terrorist groups and things that the CIA have played their part in? And now where are we? So what we're we just saying is, on the surface, we ban these people because of what they represent to us, because of how politically useful these people, rightly or wrongly. But then it's like, how far do you go with this? I suppose what you have to identify is what your own prejudices and biases are. Like, so if you like, guess what? This is weird coincidence. I really hate Donald Trump. And I also think Donald Trump should be banned from Twitter. I hate Jordan Peterson. And I also think, like, where I suppose where things become interesting is when you say, I completely disagree with the politics of Donald Trump and the philosophy of Jordan Peterson, but I believe in free speech. And therefore, like, it's... If they, once those two things, if you can uncouple those ideas, then I think there's a chance for a reasonable debate. But there is no debate. There are sort of two fl- frozen blocks of dogma clashing against one another. And I can't help but think that that is convenient for centralised power and a distraction. Mm-hmm. Now, take this World Cup in Qatar, 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 Qatar. Like similarly, who are who's in a position? Whether it's the CIA infiltration of social media, like if you, if you accept that there has been CIA and FBI infiltration into Facebook and Twitter uh, and all of the social media giants has been as has been widely reported and not into irrelevant positions. They are controlling uh, the editorial policy. They are controlling who gets censored. So ultimately. Big tech and the state have a shared agenda. That's ultimately what's being, and certainly are able, or certainly have convergent interest to the degree where they can control a narrative and and assure that their agenda is met. Trump, I mean, it's it's a very difficult case, but it's it's very hard to argue that he's gen like in a general 
like constant way inciting violence. Um, I have to wonder, has Russell Brand seen Enjoy the Show? I email it to him. Hmm. Sounds weird. You know, that he says that they're infiltrating. People still forget that DARPA is actually the creator of Twitter, right? It's a DARPA product. The majority of the money that Twitter gets is from the government. They mine data and sell data. Wait till everybody finds out why the accounts were all banned and what happened with that. See, we haven't heard that yet. I'm surprised I'm still banned. I didn't do anything to get banned, but I was banned. So again, why would they ban me if I didn't violate the rules? Because I was banned along with a bunch of other people. In fact, I was on the airplane in one of my last tweets. Let me see if I can, I don't know if I can pull it up. Let me see if I can. Twitter. Okay. Let me, let me show you my last tweets. You can see. All right. Give me a second and we'll come back to Russell Brand. Hold on. We'll come back to that. Allow me to show you my account. As you can see, I still have DMs that I never opened. I will go to my profile. Here's my last tweet. It's happening. And I had a screenshot of General Flynn being banned, right? This is minutes apart. It's happening before the ban. It's happening. He got banned. And right after that, I got banned. So on January 8th, what group of users, right? I want you to think of this because a lot of people were purged at the same time, which means they were all put on a specific list. What if everyone? that was located in Washington, D.C. at the time or was at January 6th. Are you seeing it now? Are you seeing it now? This is why there was a massive purge, but there were people that didn't go to the Jan 6 events. So how were they banned too when they weren't? Because on January 8th, I was flying back home because I had to attend a criminal trial that Monday. So again, what list banned? Oh, you guys aren't seeing it, are you? My gosh, I didn't share the screen. My apologies. Here we go. So as you could see on January 8th, I tweeted, marching Antifa to the Capitol building. And as you noticed, I didn't put the air quotes, damn it, I should have. And then you see, told you show. It's happening. It's happening. And I showed a screenshot of General Flynn being banned. And then I was banned right after that. So, the question everyone should be asking themselves is obviously, <laughs> how did I know before it started? <laughs> but also, what groups, and they were done in, in installments, 
There were three different installments of purges. What groups were removed and who took that data? Because there were a lot of people that were not in Washington, D.C. that got banned. During the Great Purge, I think it was like a million accounts. Again, what prompted this? January 8th, right? And what cohorts were requested and by who? When you see where this data went, then you will understand what is really happening. And I'm not the one to say. Because even if I tell you, you don't have to listen to it. Right? You'll have to figure that out yourself. And a lot of people are like, why didn't you just say it? And it's like, build your own house. Learn to discern. Because if you're going to wait for everyone to hold your hand and tell you everything, well, I mean, you're the one that's going to come back here and repeat this all over again. Now, let's continue this amazing um, conversation that he has. It's quite stimulating. Um, you, you could, could maybe, maybe argue, argue that he that he maybe did that on January 5th and January 6th, but... I think that's a difficult argument to hold up forever. And then you have to apply it to everybody. That's the big problem with all this is how do you, how do you remove one person, but not 5,000 other people who've committed the same kinds of offenses? Uh, people are always going to see bias in those decisions. I yeah, think. I think I think you're I think you're right about that. Certainly. Um, do you think that Trump? It is the era of Trump over. Like in his um, announcement at Mar-a-Lago, he said that he would dismantle the deep state. He still seems to incentivize the uh, let's, let's call it the sort of neoliberal left in the same way he always did. Um, do Do you think that we're seeing the the decline of the sort of Trump era, even if it is the, the Trump narrative rather than him as a sort of a political figure? So I made the mistake once in <laughs> October of 2016 of saying Donald Trump was finished. Um, this was after the Access Hollywood thing. I, I put that in print in Rolling Stone, and I, <laughs> I'm not going to make that mistake ever again. The guy is never finished. He's like Jason in the Friday the 13th movies. Like he, He's never actually dead. You should never turn your back on Donald Trump. <laughs> um, and, you know, he feed, what he feeds off is uh, the way that sort of mainstream media and politicians treat him. Uh, there's a narrative that he creates that he's being treated unfairly, and in many cases, he's right. Uh, and the more they do that, the more they try to clamp down and use force to prevent him from speaking or whatever it is, he draws energy from that. So I, I never count him out. I always think that his, his best friends are his enemies, actually, because they, they give him... Um, all this uh, momentum through the media by, by trying to cut off your ability to hear what he has to say. So if you were trying to handle Trump strategically, you would say, let Trump be on Twitter, let Trump access media like any other political orator or ideologue, 
and focus the argument if you are an opponent of Trump on how you are going to address the issues that Trump successfully has brought to the forefront. The belief that there are deep state operatives that control the political space beyond the reach of ordinary democratic process, that you will limit and control corporate power and finance and create a fairer world for ordinary Americans of all colors and persuasions. Would that be a way of doing it? And I suppose, is that impossible for Trump's opponents because of their uh, entrenched relationships? Well, I think, that, I think that's the key. I think Trump understood this on some level in 2016, which is that, yeah, the, the way that you defeat Donald Trump, if you're, if you're thinking strategically, is to kind of ignore him as much as you can and then offer your own positive, uh, you know, believable, uh, honest, way forward for people. And what happened, I think, in 2016 especially was we had this country that had experienced tremendous difficulty after 2008. There was this growing wealth gap uh, that was caused in large part by corruption that went totally unpunished uh, during the Obama years. And Donald Trump got up there and said, look, I come from this world. I'm one of these people who lives who lives up on that corrupt Olympus, and I know how things work, and they're lying to you, and they're lying about me, and rather than address that directly, they just kept talking about him, you know, being, you know, this or that, and highlighting his negatives instead of addressing the issues, which is what they've never done. They've never understood that they, they have to reckon with their own unpopularity before they can get rid of the guy. Watch entire episodes on demand for free at rumble forward slash Russell Brand. That was a very interesting conversation. And it tells you everything you need to hear in regards to how alternative views are and obviously still pushing things. But, but I haven't finished with Russell Brand, right? I want to show Stay you free with me. another video. And this is, you know, I'm showing him some love because I simply adore him. And I don't know if you guys follow him. I, I, I think I subscribed to him even on Locals. Um, I want to see him do more personal stuff on there. I think that's what has to be. Um, that's how Locals should be used, you know, for people to put out um, exclusive content with a wall and um, their own personal selves. I'd love to see him in his personal capacity. I'd love to see him, uh, you know, cooking and just being him and, you know, what he does in his everyday life. I guess, you know, I have that, oh, I'd love to see what he says <laughs> or does outside of, you know, the spotlight. But see, he brings critique, critique in the sense of, uh, thought and speech. And again, like I say, you can either see it that he speaks serpent speak, where it's uh, double-sided and it is to sow seeds of doubt or it is to get you to inquire because he is in turn inquiring. I remember just how devastated he was with what Katy Perry said about him and how I felt that he tried to, in his own way, um, try to save her, if that sounds anywhere near. Or maybe she was to handle him, who knows. But um, the fact of the matter is, his, these two 
episodes and please go to Rumble and watch the full episode of that um, are quite fascinating. I mean, when you're in your car, you can see about it. But here's where he talks about Ukraine. And I think it's important we listen to this. Hey, Russell Brand. We were talking talking about about the mainstream media's reporting on the Ukraine-Russia conflict, in particular the jubilance and jingoism that has framed the return of Ukrainian forces to Kherson. And anyone would understand and support the victory of Ukrainian people who have known such suffering during this conflict. Is there something irresponsible in presenting just one side of the story? And do you think we're being given a fair depiction of events in the Ukraine and Russia war right now? And what in particular do you think is being neglected? and why max well you're right russell there's been a lot of celebration of the ukrainian military's successful offensive in the herson region and specifically the city of herson in southern ukraine and russia has retreated from the west bank of the dnieper river uh, and established a new line of defense this is not something that russia really wanted to have happen um But whose victory are we talking about among the Ukrainian people? And who are the Ukrainian people? See, these are questions that go to the heart of this conflict and help us provide a context for understanding why this conflict is taking place, what motivated Russia to enter in February, and how this war has actually been going on for eight years. Because as we see now in Kherson, and you're going to have to look on social media to see this, you can look at my Twitter account, you can see it on Telegram channels, and CNN has inadvertently shown some of it along with the AP. Members of that 30% of the Ukrainian population who are ethnic Russian, who have been officially disenfranchised, had their language stripped as an official language, been attacked, slaughtered, jailed, threatened by the regime that was installed with a U.S.-backed coup in 2014, they are being tortured, disappeared, and kidnapped inside Kherson right now because they're suspected of Russian sympathies by the Ukrainian so-called liberators. So for them, this is not a liberation. It's why Russia, before withdrawing its forces, evacuated 80,000 civilians from Kherson because they would all be targets of the Ukrainian military. And they've done this all across areas that they've supposedly liberated. Before this, we saw it in areas outside Kharkiv, like the town of Kupiansk, for example. A neo-Nazi battalion leader named Maxim Zorin actually published on Telegram video of his men dumping the bodies of civilians into a mass grave that they just executed after accusing him of Russian sympathies. And now we see the same thing happening in Kherson. Soldiers torturing, uh, mocking, bound civilians, civilians being bound to poles and mocked by the local pro-Ukrainian population. And we've also seen the soldiers coming in with Nazi insignia on their uniforms, like the Totenkopf, which was worn by the Nazi SS in World War II. Uh, One apparently pro-Ukrainian civilian was, I think it was an accident, shown by CNN on a national broadcast yesterday, sigheiling as he rode through the town with a Ukrainian flag. I mean, maybe he was sick hiling, maybe he was just stretching his arm after torturing collaborators. I don't know what was happening there, but it was an obvious sig heil. So what happened the next day? The Ukrainian government banned CNN and Sky News and other networks from the town because they said that their so-called stabilization activities were not complete. You know, we're not just talking about some anomalous situation. This is the violence that the... Stabilization activities. Now I urge you to watch this episode too. 
Stabilization activities, meaning setting it up. Now, one thing people should do is not mistake tactics for strategy. While many believe that, you know, the Greek army (laughs) defeated the city of Troy because they left the Trojan horse outside the city, thinking that it was, you know, a victory, you know, the Trojans actually were like, oh my gosh, this is a victory trophy from the goddess of war, Athena, brought into the city. And then that night, the Greek soldiers came out of the horse uh, and, um, you know, destroyed Troy from within. It was a Trojan horse. The horse was merely, um, uh, was a strategy. Um, this is what people say, but in fact, it was a tactic that they created to siege the city of Troy, almost like the, um, hordes of inflamed people. Hordes of inflamed, you know, people coming through our borders. Um, that is what it is remnants, reminiscent of. <laughs> that sounds better. That is what I see. In fact, This is what many see. Do not mistake tactics for strategy. In fact, this tactic that people allege was a strategy was to defeat Troy from within. But the tactic is how they got into the city. And the tactic was, let's get into the city And the horse was the tactic for the strategy of getting into the city. It's a marketing strategy, I guess, to make people think that tactics are strategies when tactics are mere tools of strategies. This is used in every facet of our life, every single facet of our life. This idea of the horse was developed by people And they tend to talk about tactics because tactics are actually tangible actions. And it's easy for people to understand that. So people will ask about a great social media post or a brilliant television ad as an amazing direct or, or like an amazing mail direct campaign where they send you stuff in the mail, right? And it's like amazing. And, and all of it, you know, all those, uh, tactics, right? Um, capture the imagination of everything. But those ideas will only develop, will be developed with a strategy. So first you have a strategy and you figure out what you want to do and then you create the tactics for it. Marketing is a strategic discipline, right? Marketing, PR, psychological operations, right? Um, They are it is a strategic discipline. All of those are strategic strategy discipline. And without, without coming up with um, anything robust, ideas and tactics only work with questions you ask to see a strategy come to fruition. 
So basically, a marketing strategy, a psychological operation, uh, you know, or anything else, you are forced to to digest, or the problems that you want to solve are strategies that you concoct, and then you find the tactics uh, in which uh, you will facilitate that to come to fruition. And I think it's important that I take you to a very old book that I um, was going to talk about yesterday, but I didn't. It's um, it takes you into like this this era of I think it's like the twenty third or twenty second century, where humanity had you know propelled in technology so far that it had uh, populated worlds or dimensions that were you know within the same um, galaxy, like the Milky Way galaxy, for example, and even the Earth's solar system. And uh, Earth, old Earth, um, whichever that is, that could be, I don't know, uh, you know, Jupiter. And then the moons were, I don't know, you know, or maybe Saturn with all those rings. Who knows, right? But old Earth um, was populated with all sorts of people, all sorts of colors, creeds, religion, a melting pot, almost like Earth today. It was almost like a wide spectrum of thought and and diversity. But the other worlds, like other planets or, I guess, satellites of other planets, were populated by splintered cultures. Uh, in, in, in essence, there would be, you know, one group of people that were all, you know, I don't know, Ashkenazi Jews and another world with uh, uh, Russian Christians and another world with um, people that were no taller than four feet. Another world where, you know, nobody had a gender and everything was done in a laboratory. Another world where, you know, they only um, they didn't develop anything and they would live off the land and be on a countryside with farms and pigs. And, you know, that was basically it. And another one that was in complete chaos, you know, they were all different. Let's just say, um, there was one group, uh, the exotics, another one, the philosophers, the mystics, uh, the friendlies, the faith holders, you know, whatever, right. There were a variety of them, but in essence, um, even those factions of new worlds, of these younger worlds that stem off of Earth, were dependent on Earth. Because there were two primary factions that controlled Earth, and, and we see them today. Hence, the foresight in this book. There's the Western Alliance and the Eastern, Asia and the West. Although they don't, you know, kind of tell each other, hey, we're warring right now for dominance, and it wasn't there, they would support opposing. So, like, the Western Alliance would be like, yo, I'm down with, you know, the people of Io, for example, because they don't like the, the Eastern Alliance. So, I'm down with you. So, they would support the opposing factions in wars at the other planet. So any younger civilization or, uh, you know, um, how do I say this? Uh, wow. This is 
getting super naked. Um, so like, for example, <laughs> um, this is odd. Uh, for example, if um, there was a moon called Europa and Europa had the younger uh, European people and those European people were targeting, uh, you know, the people of the moon that were of the Asian, you know, um, alliance and um, the Eastern alliance, I would say. But the Eastern alliance on the moon would only be on the darker part. And then on the light part, which uh, people were told, was the Western alliance new group of people that decided to colonize there. So then the people of Europa would target the dark side of the moon. Therefore, the Western alliance on Earth would be supporting the people of uh, Europa to target the new faction of the uh, Eastern Alliance on the Dark Moon. And so um, this was a way to um, describe wars. Uh, it was actually called, it's science fiction, it was written by uh, Dickinson. Um, uh, I don't have a physical copy of the book. I actually, I think, you know, um, after I left... Uh, um, North Dakota, I, I didn't bring anything with me. Almost everything I, I had accumulated in my life was thrown in a dumpster. So I believe that one went and I had a first edition. So I'm like really pissed, but it was one of my favorite books because it was, um, it was amazing. It's actually part of his, um, chilled cycle series. Um, and it, the book is called tactics of mistake. And when you read it with today's eyes and with a 40,000 foot view, right? Um, it makes sense. I know there's a copy of it at the library of Congress. I, um, just like many, um, had, um, submitted a lot of things. You know, we can all submit things to the Library of Congress. And I believe um, I had requested um, from the Library of Congress to um, uh, make that an archive uh, because I found it extremely fascinating in respects to the way it was written and the way it was purported. So I urge um, people that love to read, or I don't know if it's an audio book or not, but you know, I, I think um, there's a review. I'm trying to pull it up for you guys. A review on this book from Shane's Reviews. Now, some of his reviews are okay. Um, others I don't agree with. But this one is kind of middle of the road because it's a very niche um, reading. And I, um, I tend to believe that a lot of people that do read this kind of genre are more of geeks that are trying to figure out um, at which point in time that they've been situated in. I think that's safe to say. Let's go. Let's watch this because he's pretty good. Shane's Reviews, and I hope you are having a great day today. Today, today we're going to be talking about book four of the Door Size series, which was Tactics of Mistake. Now, I know that in the last time that I talked about one of these books, I was like, man, this is kind of like a one-trick pony, but uh, let's give it a shot. 
Uh, it was, of course, wrote by Gordon R. Dixon and narrated by Stefan Rudnicki. Let's have a quick word about the narration and the production quality. Good. Compared to the last several books that I have gone through and listened to, oh my god, thank you, Stefan Rudnicki, and thank you to the production team, because for a change, I haven't wanted to uh, spit nails by the time I got done with the book. So that's that's awesome. And to be fair, usually Stefan Rudnicki's reading is incredible. I think the first time that I ever heard him was in Ender's Game, uh, way back when, and ever since whenever I find one of the books that he's read, I'm just like, yes, thank you. Uh, so that's that's what that is. The production was on top of its game. It was a really enjoyable book to listen to. Now, the interesting thing about this is it doesn't matter if you've read any of the Doorside books before or not. If you have not, you can simply pick this one up and go, and you won't be lost. There's a few terms that you'll be introduced to, like the... I can never get them right, but one is the exotics, one is the, is, I think it's the friendlies, but they're absolutely not friendlies. If I'm wrong, correct me down there. You, you know where it's at. I was really concerned that this format and just it being a different story in a different place at a different time, kind of, was really not going to work out too well. But here I am on the fourth one going, oh, okay, nicely done. We have a, a main character in this by the name of Cletus, and he is an interesting sort. And the book itself is kind of, to me anyway, a lot more interesting than the other ones that I've read. Mainly because the first one was about somebody that was, you know, kind of an officer. The next one was about somebody that was considered to be a necromancer. The one after that was about a journalist. And, I mean, don't get me wrong, overall the stories all play together very nicely, but... As their individual components, the the first one was interesting, and the second one I was like, hmm, okay. The third one I was like, not so interesting. But this one, this one's where the money's at for me so far in the series. And the reason why is because we have somebody that's a tactician that really knows their stuff, knows where they're at in life, and knows themselves uh, in ways that some people just never can and never will. And that's the thing that really kind of kept me going on this. Like, for instance, the opening scene, uh, Cletus has taken advantage of his first night privileges, meaning that he is sitting with pretty much anybody that he wants to. Anyway, the long of it all is is everybody at this table is really playing down on him because he's kind of like the newbie, the new guy. And, you know, what do you know about this, that, and the other? What do you know about being a soldier? And his goal is that he's going to write um, 26 books that are going to be on tactics. That doesn't really sound like that much of an interesting premises for a story really to me personally but i was wrong i was completely wrong i'm glad that i stuck this one out because not only does this book have a solid story behind it the main character and the characters around him are relatable and also i mean from the standpoint of it just makes sense the book just continues to go like a juggernaut all the way through into the end but this book kind of has two endings most of the time whenever there's a a book that kind of gets to that point where it's like you feel like it is the ending and should be the ending, but then it just continues on because of, oh, well, here, this random thing happened. Now we have all this to do. I usually don't get behind that very well because then it's, it's almost like they're just trying to stretch the book out to make it a little bit longer, right? But this wasn't the case. There was a point here where the book really could have ended and the story would have been non-affected in a negative or in a positive way.
it, it would have been a solid ending and in fact could have been done and none of us would have been any of the wiser but there was so much more that was added after that it actually enriched the rest of the story I don't want to give too much of any of it away if you're going to read it. Essentially, we got to find out more about him and his wife. We find out more about the way that his mind works and the way that he was going to try to change everything for the better. He had his own little agenda, but they weren't really interested. They, you know, they, they just weren't wanting to give him the power. And that's the funny thing about power. Power is earned. It's never given. He hadn't got to the point yet in life where people felt like he was due these sorts of things, I don't think. But in, in his mind and in his actions, he actually was very much there. And that's that's what happens is we see him start this thing and develop it and then train a bunch of people and do a perfect setup for delegation to others. So the training will continue without him being involved and... Wow, well done. The thing is, is also in the book, there was a point where the entitlement of the book, the namesake of the book, is actually used within. Sometimes I like that, sometimes I don't. But in this case, I was just like, okay, well done. I said what you did there. I applaud you. Thank you, sir. But I've got to ask that question. You know, is this book worth your time, efforts, and energies? There are some points of the book that it goes way out into right field sci-fi-wise, and I absolutely loved it. Apparently, Cletus has this mindset and psychological mindset where he's not able to be hypnotized like everybody else around him. That's one. Two, the doctors have determined to fix the problems that he has with his leg. Psychologically, he's going to reject the leg, and then physically, he will reject it as well. So he asked the doctor to get a hold of one of the exotics that he knows, and then they're going to do a miracle. And that sounds really off-kilter the way that I just said it, but if you read the book... You'll see. And it's not off-kilter. And it, it's actually pretty cool the way they go about stuff on that. But I digress. Is it worth your time, efforts, and energies? I've got to ask that question. And I think so. Mainly because it's a standalone book. Most of the books in the... Well, up to this point, all these books have really been standalones. But they all tie into the same universe. So with broad strokes, this guy is painting a, a universe. And I'm kind of curious to see where it goes. As long as it doesn't become pulp. If it becomes pulp, I won't be able to continue with the series at all. It was certainly enjoyable. The characters are highly relatable. I haven't really gotten any emotional attachment to any of the people that are in the stories just yet because they have been all standalone. So you kind of get new characters, but maybe references to old characters, which is perfectly fine. I'm willing to take the experiment and see where we go. Question of the week. You know, I should really start thinking these out. Because if I ask the one that I want to ask, it's going to give away something. What would you do with that sort of tactician's mind if you were able to plan so far ahead that people realize that you planned that far ahead only weeks after you had actually done it, or even months in some cases in some of the stuff in this book? Where would you focus your attentions in today's role? Actually, honestly curious. You know what to do down there. And also, also as a bonus, bonus if... You happen to leave a comment and it's interesting, clean, and you're not trying to shill something. So, then we'll put that up. What if you were such an amazing tactician that your strategy was laid out years in advance for all to see? See, are you seeing that everything that is happening right now across our nation? 
discussing the discrepancies about our election. I have laid out to you two years in advance for all to see. And I have questioned many times, why is it now and not then? Why is it now that they have taken what I have pointed out and scripted and laid it out all bare in the days to come as well while ridiculing others and the actual tactician that had the ability to strategize that far in advance. It is a simple question. If you were able to strategize that far ahead and you were able to tactically pinpoint it and you knew that they would not adhere to it, but they would stick to the script, right? Why would you show the world, hey, why wasn't this done two years ago? Why wasn't this done? Maybe it was to show you that this is really just a stage and a show. And maybe we definitely are worlds apart. Let's take a break. I think um, after the break, I may elaborate on that. Let's go. And that was Eva on Fire. Eva on Fire. She comes from Chicago. She did that cover. Now allow me to take you back to our earlier conversation about tactics and strategy in Troy. Allow me to take you to the time where the journey mattered more than the destination. It's all about the journey. And you'll see how numbers across all historical documents, both ancient and stories and myths, seem to be the same. Ulysses, right after the destruction of Troy in 1200 BC, he set sail northwest of Troy with his 12 ships to plunder the land of Siconis, who were allies of the Trojans. Each ship had 20 oars, 10 to each side, carried at least 40 men. 40 men in each of his 12 ship squadron. That was a total of around 500 crewmen. Ulysses' men delayed and lost 72 men. Six men from each ship. 
that would mean <laughs> that when the Sikons gather the allies and attack them on shore, this is where they lost their lives. If you remember, Ulysses, his own squadron on the ship that he was on, one of the 12 ships that followed him set sail, and this terrible gust of fate that came down from the north drove them down the Aegean, south of the Aegean, past Kithara. And nine days later, they were swept along what they would like to say was modern-day Libya, I guess. They landed in Jabra, the land of lotus eaters. Lotus. Interesting fruit. Allow me to share a video on how you eat a lotus fruit. It's quite interesting. Namaskar. Acha video madhe mi tumala lotus fruit. Manjhe kamala cha fal kasa asta te dakhona rahe. Ani kamala cha fal kasa khatat te hi apan baghu. Kya hai kamala cha fal? Hold on. Yacha botanical. So as you can see, the lotus fruit looks like it has eyes. It has seed pods in it. Uh, it is a very, uh, it's a, anyone that has trypophobia, anyone that has a problem with holes and or multiple eyes, um, cannot, uh, come to proximity with this fruit as it looks horrific, but you can eat it. The seeds you can eat raw. Uh, sometimes people pop the seeds out, as you can see, almost like pomegranates, right? Um, so you can eat those raw in their form. Others will slice them and fry them. Um, others can bake them. As you can see, a lotus fruit it does not look very attractive. It looks quite alien. And when in ancient times one would refer to the lotus fruit, it would be referred to as the fruit of all seeing eyes. Right. And so this fruit, this um, alleged fruit, is what Ulysses's people ate. And they decided that. They did not want to leave the land of lotus eaters. They wanted to stay. In fact, the lotus fruit caused them to feel dizzy and mesmerized. And it's a fruit that the island people where they saw ate this and they would forget their past, their wives, their friends, and they would lose the desire to go to their native land in favor of simply existing. Uh, almost like they descended into a painless virtual reality that they never felt hot or cold. Uh, 
They did not have the need for food or water. They simply existed. In fact, in Ovid's Metamorphosis, the beautiful daughter of Neptune, who was uh, the nymph, Lotus, she was the daughter of Neptune, the god of water and sea. Priapus, who had a evil mm, obsession with her, um, was who she wanted to flee from. So she begged the gods to help her escape and turned her into a lotus tree. And believe it or not, the Bible actually makes reference once to lotus trees. In fact, in the book of Job, there are two lines, 40, 21, and 22, with a very specific word, se'elim, which in Hebrew actually means lotus trees. And that is the actual translation of it. And even in the Quran, the lotus tree is exactly what marks the end of the seventh heaven. But what happened to the people during that journey for Ulysses or Odyssea, which actually means the journey of people, uh, Odysseus, Ulysses, right? See how they changed the name. The name is Odyssea. Which, if you actually break down the words of what that means, it's simply the journey of man. It is the trans, I would say, now I'm, I'm giving notion to the direct translation, which is man, water, transverse. Transversing of water, of man. Uncharted journeys the journey of mankind, whatever. But when they landed there and uh, three of his men decided that they wanted to stay on the land of the lotus eaters, he forcefully retained them and chained them to the ship and set sail northeast. The next landfall was of the island of goats, which people allege was off the was west of Italy and Sicily, I guess something like Malta maybe, I don't know. And nine goats fell to each ship. And so Ulysses wanted to sail across the sea to see the fires that were happening somewhere in the land of the east. They were embers, really. But then Ulysses picked 12 of his best men and ordered his squadron 
to remain on guard as he entered the cave of Polyphemus. Polyphemus, by definition, definition, polyphemus, of fame. A lot of, 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 a lot of fame. That is what the word means. The cave of Polyphemus remains extant. Cyclops, a round head, almost as if they had a tattoo of an eye on their foreheads as a mark, identifying who they belong to. Not necessarily giants. Odyssea and his men were trapped by Polyphemus, well, the cave of the a lot famous when Polyphemus, the head Cyclops, closed the cave with boulders. Ulysses, well, his real Odyssea, we change it, Usama, Osama, right? Ulysses, Odysseus. He named him Uedis. Uedis means no one. Ulysses figured out that Polyphemus and his tattooed eye had given him power to foresee. And therefore, he needed to blind him, which he did. And even though he entered with 12 men, he escaped with six of his men under sheep. Ulysses then rejoined the other 11 vessels that were waiting. And then he decided to sail north, hoping to get back home, hoping to get back to the origin. But he didn't get there just yet. He couldn't get back to the source. He landed in Eustica. And that island was inhabited by Aeolus and his wife and his 12 children. Aeolus gave him the gift of wind in a bag. Wind of the West in a bag. It's very detailed story of this journey. And after 12 days of sailing northeast once again, they saw the city of Kefalonia, which, by the way, is known now in modern Greece as the center of the fur trade for the Greeks. They're all furriers. That was an island that was sheltering the source, Ithaca. So since Ulysses knew he was only a breath away from the end of this journey, and he was happy and full and felt safe, he fell asleep. While he was asleep, 
his crew opened up Aeolus's gift that had wind inside of it from the west. And suddenly a storm brewed. It blew, it blew them and pushed them south of Sicily to the African shores in all memory of Ulysses's home had dissipated. You know, in his book, The Cyclops, Polyphemus, and the Lastragonians that he came into contact with were actually cannibals. Cannibals. And where you would say Corsica, um, uh, which is the modern day, I think it's um, Port, Port de, oh, I forget. That's where the Latragonians remained. And they threw rocks at his ship to keep him bound. His whole fleet went down except for his ship that did not sink. He fled and sailed off the coast of Italy where he and his men encountered Circe. Shame, shame. Circe was an enchantress, a seductress, and was deemed a goddess. They entered her domain. The men that he left his second in command with entered her domain and they were changed to become beasts and animals. Hermes, the god of message, or Thoth, depending on how you want to see it, he actually intervened and said, you know, this isn't right. Mere mortals, they are enslaving you and changing you and consuming you. And he gave Ulysses a sacred plant to protect him from Circe's spell. Those that survived and stayed on Circe's island with that plant stayed there for a year. He left and went to Sardinia and Corsica. He was being, he was going through so many things, right? He sailed at the end of the known world in the Straits of Gibraltar or the Straits of Antarctica, who knows, where he met with the god of the underworld who was related to Circe. And it's actually quite odd, isn't it? That his fate was revealed that he is to return to Circe's land if his crew slaughters the sun god's cattle. They will die. 
So believe it or not, there he goes, heading to Cersei's Island. Now, did he go because that was his fate? Because the god of the underworld told him to? Or is it because it was indeed fate? Or was he guided to? Who knows? So he returned to her island. In fact, Cersei even told Ulysses what route to take. Huh. And he sailed south to the Sirens Rocks. Another strait. They had to go through a narrow strait where the sirens would sing so lovely and mesmerize them that they would lure the people on the journey, the sailors, out to their death. And while they were going through volcanic rocks, they came into contact with Scylla and Charybdis, you know, the multi-headed dog and stuff. Scylla snatched another six men. It's very interesting how these numbers repeat 12, 46, 12, 46, 12, 46. So while many people uh, read these works and see it as something poetic, you must remember that in the end, Ulysses drifted alone on driftwood as his ship was wrecked by the whirlpool of Chebdis. And he was clinging to the fig tree of life above a boiling sea. What? And as he was on driftwood for nine days, he landed in the Dingley region of Malta, where he was detained for seven years. It was deemed the island of the hiding place. He was captured by Calypso's island. Nisos Calypsos. Almost sounds like apocalypse. It is one who reveals. And so Ulysses withered slowly, quietly, as he was revealed what the world is at Calypso. Calypso let him go and told him to build a strong pine log raft and told him to keep the plow to the left-hand side of him. And within 17 days, he landed in Greece at the island of Corfu, where the Phaeacians returned him to Ithaca, where he slew Penelope's suitors with his son, Telemachus. That's a poem that many people have gone through reading again and again. But it sounds eerily familiar and yet not. Ah. See, my fellow Americans and those that reside in 
Europe, Africa, and Asia. We've all consented to be subject to the laws of the selected officials that oversee us. Subject to the laws these selected officials have passed, and I will not dwell in explaining the limitations one for one or the conditions, which are vast and many, that have contributed to the submission of your individual sovereignty. I will and have been praying that you resent the tribute you pay in obedience in the light of realizing that it is beneficial to you, beneficial to your nation, that you do so relieve yourself of the present circumstances and ailments of this time. Musty parchments are what they allegedly rely on to make real property, homes, land, and bodies of water, and religion of millions their own domain to rule. They have claimed your freedoms as theirs, incited antiquated charters that are uncertain, untimely, and that offer contradictory means to prove that they have such right. But our forefathers left us the inheritance, which was pious and generous, the tragic privilege of rewards for honesty. The land we occupy, which they purchased and bled for, is now also a victim, as this land's people are subject to the cruel and remorseless despotism. These are persons we have allowed to rule with no check. We redress our grievances and denied our supplications at the foot of their thrones, which have been built, provided, and sustained by us, which they hold on to with the power of our alleged votes given to them, but actually stolen by them. They show no mercy and treat us like enemies. And they mock us as we expect justice in a system created to keep us enslaved. They laugh, they mock, and pillage. We, the people, have been ridiculed on a global stage with indifference and travesty as they showcase us when referencing our pleas. Are these people not supposed to protect our towns, cities, and coasts? Are they not supposed to make sure our coffers are not plundered, our men, women, and children protected from nakedness, hunger, and disease? We meekly and patiently demand such things that they are supposed to ensure, yet... They plunder our treasury for their benefit, giving aid to the enemies of our nation. 
They do not protect our men, women, and children from nakedness, as many are without home or comfort because they chose to clothe and tend those that are pouring through our borders, inflamed invaders. They are causing hunger through food shortages and inflation and purposely spreading disease. This is purposeful. Death minimizes the eyes observing them in their crimes, minimizes the food required in the hearts that need pacifying. This is treason. Treason that they have force-fed you through lotus fruit. Self-preservation is resented among men, women, and children that have drunk from the well of truth, that refuse to take a bite of that fruit. I myself venerate only the Lord. No man of this land can demand such glory than that of God. The leadership and the laws of these nations are aiding our enemies and assisting inflamed invaders to our borders, leagues of foreign assassins to imbrue their hands with our blood, sweat, and tears. Leagues of them. What shall motivate every citizen of this great nation to rise up? What is it? They have stirred American against American. Brothers fighting brothers, neighbors against neighbors, city against city, nation against nation. For what? In the name of what? Safety? Health? Power? When will it be that precipice for many? When they see scalps being torn off men's heads? Mothers clasping to their infants at their bosoms, begging for their lives? The lives of others enough? How about skipping over unburied bodies of your neighbors, your family, and your friends? Is that the precipice that you require? Well, I ask you this. Why is it not when it's snowing outside and a man, by choices of his own or of others upon him, sleeps naked in the elements not enough? Does his soul deserve this earthly suffering? Do you not see him? But I am one person. I can't collect them all and save them as I struggle myself. That's pacification and excusing misery with our own. Heaven forgive me. I am a sinner as I pacify as well. As I feel Alone, I cannot battle this. Heaven forgive me, I cannot root out these passions and detest submission to a people who have either ceased to be human or have not virtue enough to feel their own wretchedness and servitude. One man drowning will drown you in panic. Therefore, to save one man, do you not join in others to aid? And this is what gives credence to the phrase of my favorite movie, where we go one, we go all. Are you not entertained with with what they tell you? They defend us, right? 
When our nation's leaders defended our coasts, land, and people, it was to defend their property and customers, their consumers. Remember, you are the consumer being consumed. We fought their wars in what we thought was fighting for our lives and freedom, but in essence, they convoyed their ships and trucks with wealth. Wealth they acquired with our toil and dedication, and now they treat us like burdens and demand we carry a greater load or be terminated in breath. Who are they allegedly protecting us from? Many cannot see war. As the war is in your home, your village, town, city, and nation, and you are your own enemy. We are a nation of shopkeepers, and we are the products on the shelf. Ask yourself, who are we warring with? Enemies that do not quarrel with you or I. The military-industrial complex created the enemies. On their own, creating enemies for their ability to pillage, enrich themselves, and exert their strength. Now there are many nations conspiring against us. We are in the crossfire as we aided under the guise of protecting our freedoms and no man has the right to own. We do not consent. And this is what America stood for, right? Is this true? Do the wars, the endless wars, represent the actual people? Does the end game of PSYOP, S-I-O-P, the end game of world destruction by our own hands sound just? That's quite a vulgar error. But unfortunately, people repeat this notion again and again, and quite confidently, which has gained it such, well, they've repeated so many times, it has gained such rhetoric, absolute credit. You hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed, because all these things must happen and have happened. Borders are drawn every day throughout time, but the end is still to come. I mean, how soon though? It is evident that peace has never really existed, only blissful ignorance. And in this age of information, all is apparent. We see nations rising up against nations. And kingdoms against kingdoms. Do you not see that? This has been written. And the script is down to the final act. You see, there have been many famines and earthquakes in various places happening now, happened before. So, when can you determine which is the final time? We have all taken part in miseries. Passively. Actively. Knowingly, unknowingly, willingly, unwillingly. But nevertheless, we partook for the sake of our freedom and affection for the cause of liberty that was merely a tactic for us to serve them into their conquerships. Now, we can argue this notion, but do we really wish 
to adhere to one answer to a multifaceted notion? Did the protection aid and lullaby they gave us in return to not annul our rights in the name of liberty, right? Because that's what they did. They actually annulled our rights in the name of liberty and lay us under obligation to suffer this misery. After all those in office proclaim authority over every man, woman, and child, arbitrary authority, almost laying claim to your liberties and the liberties of your children that they are obligated to serve, obligated to be enslaved because they nourished you since infancy. Our governorship here in our nation and many more is a very strange and malicious species. And this governorship has been sold to us, which requires the most valuable currency. And I quote, Rebuke the beast among the reeds, the herd of bulls among the calves of the nations. Humbled, may the beast bring bars of silver. Scatter the nations who delight in war. Do you delight in war? Will their silver poised as fake swords and fancy words quench your need for accountability be the bars of silver you require? Will they pacify you with some accountability, but not full accountability? Remember, Les Waxner funded and created Epstein, and yet he got a deal. Can you see the bars of silver? It's almost as if you are being rewarded for your loyalty to defend your own property and lives on their terms, yet in turn you surrender your inestimable privileges to the arbitrary will of vindictive tyrants, which also dictate the value of your property and life that you defend. You are the hamster on the wheel consuming while being consumed. Have courage. Our contest is not only whether we shall truly be free and not merely an illusion of freedom, but whether mankind has an earthly asylum on earth afforded by their God-given liberties and break the chains of evil that hold them. Dismissing the justice of our cause as establishable, the only question is, what is best for us to pursue in our present circumstances? While many are growing anxious and antsy, I should say, put your sword back in. Pull out your pens and use your words as those that draw the sword die by the sword. We rouse for war. So let the warriors hear this cry. Put on the full armor of God. Let the warriors they have draw near and attack. While we use our pens and record these events, create public record and thus take your stand against the devil's schemes. Remember, Demons cannot say his name. 
or the name of those that serve him. Remember, the devil will not come to you bearing teeth and horns. He will come with silver, emulate compassion and solutions to your ailments. He will give you solutions that are swift, making your prison bars seem destroyed, only to enslave you by your own hands with his words. I understand parcel tongue. I am a linguist. Serpent's language, evil, Satan, Lucifer, enlightenment, whatever you want to call it. All the names that he has been called is one thing. The great deceiver. Actually, the great deceiver. Do you not live in an era of deceit? Do you not see the prison you are in is locked from the inside and the keys are in your pocket? See, the weapons we fight with are not guns, knives, and bombs. Our weapons are not weapons of this world, and this war will be won and recorded for those to come. On the contrary, the weapons we use that are out of this world have divine power to demolish strongholds, And I declare that and speak that into reality. My fellow Americans, we and all people of the world, my fellow Europeans, Asians, Africans, together we will be like warriors in a battle, trampling the enemy in the streets. We will fight because the Lord is with us and he will put the enemy's horsemen to shame. Shame is what they are receiving. Shame, resigning. Shame, dying. Shame, suicide. Shame, exposure, pants being pulled, eating dirt for the whole world to see. I say this to show you what is right in front of you that you cannot see. I speak to the ether to materialize the results of our prayers to be seen. And I quote, He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Welcome to the Earth's Reset. Maybe this time it won't be with a flood. As you can see, all of these things that we have been saying are leading to that. How do you discern at which point in time you are? How is it that the people of the 1500s believed that was the time? 1400? 200? 300. And who is to say what you know was from 1400 and 1500? Let me guess. The scientists told you. The carbon dating told you. The books written by man told you. The pictures moving on your screen told you. The pictures moving on your screen told you that 100 years ago, People had just discovered electricity and they just discovered cars and they just discovered how to fly. 
And they hadn't discovered how to communicate with each other from lands afar. But a hundred years later, we are able to communicate from one side of the world to another instantly and watching them. Yet, in 1800, that never happened. From 1700 to 1800, that never happened. From 1600 to 1700, that never happened. From 1500 to 1600, that never happened. So are you saying for a thousand, over a thousand years, a leap like the one right now was never made? Did everyone just stop eating the lotus fruit? Or did those thousands of years really never exist? Were they manufactured to allow the reset to happen on a more smoother note? See, these are all questions you must ask yourself. All very valid questions. But see, sometimes asking questions gives you answers. And sometimes answers you do not want to see. You do not want to hear and you do not want to acknowledge because then the very earth that stands beneath your feet no longer exists. It's quite a predicament, I would say. And one that can be taken with only strong faith. And so I pose this question again. If one had the power to foresee, foresee so far in advance, that they would write it out and map it out. Why would they start revealing that they wrote it out and mapped it out? It's evident. And it's a very simple, simple answer. It's to show you just how everything is simply a show. Just how everything is manufactured. Just how much control one mere random person may have over the whole fate. I mean, imagine two years ago having all this information and saying it, and then it's playing out two years later, just like you said it was. There has to be a purpose. Is it to tell people you must praise me? No. Is it to tell people that all the righteous information is going to come from one place? Absolutely not. So then why? I mean, that's the only way that people wake up and can see that indeed the whole world is a stage. And... There are a lot of script writers. On that note, happy Thanksgiving. God bless you. Break bread with those you love, but mostly break bread with all your Judases. God bless. See you on Friday.